Well, good morning. How are we? Good to see all of you. Um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to uh, look at the first 11 verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been in the middle of a series uh, called Exiles for the City because Peter's all about how do we live as exiles in our city? How do we live uh, in times and places when we're not the center of attention as well, we never really have been. Um, but when people don't believe what you believe, when you're pushed to the side, when you're ostracized, what does that look like? And First Peter is a great place for us to kind of wrestle with those ideas. Uh, and so if you want to open to First Peter chapter 4, that would be fantastic because we're going to be there uh, this morning. Uh, it's page 1016 in your chair Bible if you need one. It should be on the screen as well. So First Peter chapter 4 verse 1 here's what it says since therefore christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking or whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of god for the time that is past suffices for doing what the gentiles want to do living in sensuality passions drunkenness orgies drinking parties and lawless idolatry with respect to this they are surprised when they do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are they might live in the spirit the way god does Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as, God's stu- as, God- as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be long glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, uh, we come to your word this morning and, and we're thankful for it. It is a gift of grace to us that you're a God who speaks, you're a God who reveals, you're, you're not a God who leaves us in, in the dark, but by your grace and mercy, you've, you've come to us and, and you've revealed to us uh, your ways, your will. We, we can't know everything on this side of heaven, but, but we can know enough to know what it, who you are and, and know enough to what it means to be in relationship with you and, and to know enough to live a life worthy of you, O oh God. And so we thank you for your word now. We just ask for your help. We know it it sometimes doesn't always make sense and it can be confusing, but we pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate and and guide and and teach us this morning so that we could hear from from you. Uh, And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the essence of this series we've been talking about for a few weeks is really embracing our exilic identity as, as exiles, as, as people that have kind of been pushed to the margins, people that have been pushed to the side. First Peter, first century culture, the, the Christians there are not welcomed with open arms uh, by this newfound faith in Jesus Christ, that there's all these different gods and, and they're looked down upon, they're scorned, they're maligned, they're, they're pushed away, they, they, they've lost social standing in the culture. And, and yet Peter's call is not to retreat from that and, and not to, to say, well, we're just Christians, we'll just go live in a little holy huddle on the side or we'll, we'll just kind of, you know, put our tail between our legs um, you're welcome for the image, and, and put our tail between our, our legs and, and just go hide out and just kind of do Christian things all alone. He says, no, you're going to live such good lives among those that don't believe that they'll even be drawn in. 
that you're going to do such good works among those who don't believe that they're going to be drowned. You're going to live right in the central piece of culture and society, and you're going to live in a very distinctive way so that others will know what this God is like, the same God that you and I worship. And that's always been God's plan from Genesis to Revelation. When we read the scriptures, we see that God's people were always placed right in the, the middle, right in the thick of things where people didn't believe and think the way that they believed and thought and lived. Why? Because God had a plan. He says, as you follow me, as you listen to my commands, as you heed my, my word, the nations would be drawn in to say, this is the God uh, of scripture. This is what he's like. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of, of grace. He's, he's a good God. He's a, he's a worthy God, a, a God to be worshiped and praised. And so that's been kind of the, the heartbeat, the, the, the central theme of First Peter for us. How do we do that? How do we live that? Now, our text this morning is a, I love this text because it's so bizarre and it's, it's, it so pushes against the ways we typically think about life and how our lives are shaped and how we live these lives as, as God's people. Um, but, but our summary of our text this morning is how do we live in light of the future? <laughs> because really how we live now is determined by how we see the future. You've heard me say that a million times, that the way you and I live today is basically how we see the future. Is there a hope in the future? Is there, you know, it's just all just accident. It's all just random. It's just maybe some good things will, will come of it. Or knowing what we know and knowing what we know what's, that's been revealed in Scripture. And, and remember how the, the series began and how First Peter began was this living hope that we have in, in Christ. Why do we have a living hope? Because we have a living God who's resurrected from the dead. And so, so our hope is not predicated on how well our life goes or how well our jobs are going or, or whether we have health or no health. It's, it's predicated on a living hope rooted in a living God who's resurrected from the dead. And by his resurrection, we are promised that same resurrection. By his resurrection, God has enacted and began to heal and restore all of creation. So how we see the future determines how we live today. So if we could summarize our text this morning, and, and we're going to get a little heady here, but... but, but um, we could say it this way, by focusing on what Christ accomplished in the past, he secured our future and the future of the entire creation. So by looking to the past, knowing the future is secure, we can live distinctly in the present. That's what our text essentially in a nutshell says. But I want to ask the question, how do we do that today? How do, how do we do that? And that's what we're going to look at in, in our, our text this morning, because it's, it's, it's very kind of, kind of weighty and, and kind of bizarre in many ways, which we'll get to, but it's also very practical in nature that how we see the future shapes how we live today. And that's exactly what Peter is saying, that you have this hope secured already in the future, so that's going to shape how you live today as God's exilic people in the world. So, so the first, first place we're going to look at, there's kind of these two little moves that Peter makes in the text is we need to look to the past. We need to look to the past. Notice the, the two moves that, that Peter makes here in, in verse 1 and, and, and 2. He says, look to the past of Christ's suffering for us. Maybe you caught that. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, some translations say suffered for us, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So there's these two moves. It says, first, look 
to, to Christ's suffering for you, for us, that he suffered in the flesh. He came to earth fully God, fully man, and suffered and died on the, the cross, suffered in, in other ways too, not just on the cross. Of course, that's important and, and vital, but he also just suffered in his life in general. People didn't, didn't embrace him. His own people, Jewish people that, that should have known the scriptures backwards and forward, knew Isaiah 53 backwards and forward. Here comes Jesus, and even his own people pushed him away. He had no place to lay his head. His own inner circle, the disciples. I'll never leave you, Jesus. I'll never forsake you. And then when Peter is engaged by the, the authorities, what does he say? I never knew the man. Judas, right, sells out Jesus so that he can make a few bucks and puts him on the cross, an innocent man, right? So, so Jesus knows suffering well, but he suffered in a very specific way uh, for us. And so, so when we, we think about what it means to live today as exilic people, is first we're going to look to the past uh, of, of, of the gospel and the realities of that, of how Christ has suffered for us. And we want to get that deep in our bones. Because Peter's going to remind us time and time again, as we've kind of walked through the series, he, he tells us kind of these gospel promises, these realities. Remember in Second Peter, or excuse me, um, I'll get to that in just, just a moment. But, but this, this idea of remembering the past is, is so vital in the scriptures, and it's something that we, you and I have to do all the time. Why? Because we're forgetful people. One of my, my favorite texts actually comes in 2 Peter. If you want, want to just take a look real quick. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I, I laugh every time I read this text. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Do you hear what he just said? <laughs> He's basically like, uh, hey, um, I know you know these things, and you get them, and you're, you're with them, and there's nothing confusing about them, but I still need to remind you, by way of reminder, I need to stir these things up in you. Does that sound like you and me? Like we know cognitively certain truths and certain things, but sometimes when we look at our lives, there's this big wide chasm of what we believe and how we actually live. So, so let me stir you up by way of reminder, the truths that you already know. Because, because I, I think most Sundays, that's all we're really doing here. We're not, we're, there's nothing profound here. My job as a pastor is not to make stuff up on Sunday and say, let's find some edgy truth or some doctrine that no one's ever uh, thought of and maybe some angle that no one's ever, ever considered. That's actually where heresy goes. Something that's novel and something that's trite or something that's right new. If it's new and fresh, it's probably, you probably want to get away from it because this still works and God's revealed what, what we need, right? So, so, so he's saying, but by way of reminder, the problem with you and I is that we're forgetful. And so Peter is going to engage and says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sins. He's been telling that time and time again. And these people understand they're Christians. They understand that Christ suffered for them and died for them and forgives them of their sins. But they need a, a, a huge reminder in this moment. Because often that's what shapes our, our living. It's inconsistent of what we believe and how we actually walk that out. I love what uh, Martin Luther said. He, he was uh, uh, the great reformer. The, the, um, he wasn't a Lutheran then, but he became a Lutheran later. But um, Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, and this, it's called Letters of Spiritual Counsel. Somebody was asking him, you know, how, how do I live this faith? What, what does this look like? like? How do I do this daily? And here's, here's what he said. The highest of all God's commands is this. 
that we ever hold up before our eyes the image of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He must daily be to our hearts the perfect mirror in which we behold how much God loves us and how well in his infinite goodness as a faithful God he has grandly cared for us that he gave his dear son for us. Do not let this mirror and throne of grace be torn away from before your eyes. In other words, hold up the mirror of the gospel to your eyes, to your heart, to your life daily, constantly, as you're you know, swinging a hammer, as you're teaching kids at school, as you're raising kids in, in homeschooling or whatever you're doing, as you're uh, doing your engineering uh, thing or doing your business thing or, or with your spouse or with your friends. There's just this constant need for us to hold up the mirror of the gospel and to remember that Christ died for us and that our future is secure. Right? How hard that is to do, isn't it? We, we've been uh, in our city groups, and well, not really in our city groups, but our men's, men's study and women's study. We've been encouraging this church, the church, our church, uh, to read this book on habits. And the reason why we do that is because all of us are forgetful. That we need to build in habits in our lives that often requires holding up the mirror of Scripture to remind us that God is good and God is faithful and that in the end, everything's going to be okay. So we look to the past sufferings of Christ uh, for us. And Peter, um, which I was about to mention earlier, has, has reminded us already a couple times in this letter what that is. If you go to chapter 1 and verse 17, remember what he said here, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You've been, been ransomed, you've been transformed from the inside out to leave the futile ways before you believed and to, to enter into a new life, into a new kingdom. He mentions in, in chapter 2, we, we read this a couple weeks ago, chapter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We have to continually hold up a mirror to these truths and these realities because it shapes how you live in the future or how you live today shapes how you see the future and what's done for you in the past. I'll give you one more. Andy preached on this, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, the once and for all Sacrifice. You know how relevant that is? That when you and I each day fall on our faces and break the commands of God, I can marvel at the fact that Jesus died once and for all. I don't have to earn something after I sin. I should confess. I should repent. Yes and amen. But it's been completed, right? He, he doesn't, doesn't push me away every time I sin and say, well, you better get your life together. 
That's what your dad or your mom did when you were growing up, right? <laughs> you screwed up again, you better think about what you did, right? That's not grace, is it? And I've done it as a parent. But, but to say this, this, this God who's, who's died for us, who sacrificed for us, this Peter is reminding them you need to hold up that mirror and look to the past and remember what he's done for you. It is finished. It is completed. Now you're free to live in that new freedom and to live for righteousness. That sin doesn't have the last say anymore. It doesn't have the power that it once had over you any longer. You have a new freedom in me. Now, what I I love about this text, because it is very practical, is notice just a couple words here in that first little section there. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So so there's something very uh, intentional here with Peter. He doesn't say, just believe these things, right? And there's a belief aspect to that. There's a trusting aspect to this. But he says, actually arm yourselves selves with these gospel realities with these truths hold up that mirror every single day so arming it's this verb it's a command it's an ongoing action in the greek thank you calvin seminary for all the debt that i have so i can know what that means but it's an arming it's it's an intentional thing it's not a passive thing it's not just believe these things he says arm yourselves daily put these things on Think about them, meditate on them, pray over them, come and gather with the church so you can hear these promises again. Go and, and be part of a, a, a group of, of believers that are walking these things out together. Go and have coffee with friends that are believers so you can remind each other of these, these promises, right? It's a very intentional arming of yourselves. Because believing is, I can, it could be a one-time interaction. I just go, oh yeah, I believe that, and I just kind of walk away. But Peter says, get up every day and get the mirror out. And remember who you are and what Christ has done in light of that. So we arm ourselves. We think that way. Remember Jesus, how he suffered. How did he suffer so well? We we got hints of that in chapter 2 a few weeks ago. He just kept entrusting himself to the Father. Who what? Who judges justly. I could could easily revile here. You know, Jesus, he's innocent in every way, without sin, yet he's being accused. He's he's being uh, crucified. He's he's going uh, in front of the the, the Roman authorities, and he's going to go in a trial that basically is a a, a bad trial if if you're a lawyer because he's an innocent guy, and yet the two thieves are going to get off, but he's not going to get off. And and so what does he do? He, He doesn't speak up. He doesn't say, hey, that's not fair. I need to get my lawyer, right? I saw this ad on TV, 1-800-FREE-ME, you know, and, and he, looked, he looked a little shady, but I'm going to call that number because apparently he specializes in these things, and I'm going to get off this cross. He doesn't do that at all. He entrusts himself to the Father. Why? Because the Father is the one who will ultimately judge, and they'll have their day. It's not our place to, to be the judge and jury, is it? It's a better, better way to live, isn't it? To know that God is the Father who takes care of us. And Jesus is the perfection of humanity, by the way. So what that means is, this works. He's the only one that could pull it off perfectly because he's without sin. But he's saying, if you want to live a transformed life, this is how you live. This is how you do this. <laughs> and this is what Peter's kind of encouraging. He's saying, arm your, arm your thinking in your ways, just like Jesus, how he thought about suffering and these things. Now, What's interesting about our text here is there's a little phrase that I think is, is confusing, but I don't think it needs to be as confusing as some would say it is. It, it, I don't know if you caught, caught this, but right at the end of verse 1, it says, whoever uh, has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It'd be easy to read that and, and say, well, what does this mean? So as I suffer, I, I'm like sinless now, I'm perfect. The more I suffer, the less 
sin. I, I don't think that's what, what it means. If you keep reading, it says this, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I think what Peter's saying here is he's not saying by our suffering somehow. When people shun us and push us away because we don't jump into you know, their sinful games or debauchery or whatever, um, which we'll get to in just a moment, it's not sinlessness. What he's saying, it's a posture that we understand that it's been finished, it's been completed on the cross. That sin has been, been, been weakened, been done away. There's nothing Jesus has to do. We, we, we preached on, on Hebrews, right? It's, it's all about the once and for all sacrifice, isn't it? We should marvel at that. We should celebrate that, right? There's, there's no sacrifice you and I have to make. There's nothing. We, we don't come to the table every, every Sunday and go, God, here's my offering. Here's my sacrifice. I screwed up all week, but, but here it is. We just come in faith with our lives as a sacrifice because you've done it for us. So, so what I think is it's the, it's, it's the flesh versus doing God's will, that the sin doesn't have the last say, doesn't have the power it once did. So now we're freed even when we're suffering, even when people don't agree with us, even when they don't like us, to still live as God would want us to live, that we could even bless our enemies the same way that God blessed his enemies by dying for them. So we... We look to the, the past. One move is to look at Christ's suffering for us. But did you also catch that he, he says to look to our past to remember even our lives before Christ? Did you catch that? Verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when they do... They, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is already who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I, I, I'm not laughing at the debauchery, but a flood of debauchery, that sounds like a lot of debauchery. Um, and I know that's not a word we don't use all the time, but let's just say a lot of sin. And then when there's a flood of it, it's just going getting nuts, people. That's my uh, Ryan Pelton translation. But, but he says, this is how you used to be. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It's not, it's not just drunkenness. It's also like drink, dr- drinking parties. So that's like a whole nother, that's like taking the JV drinking up to like another level of varsity drinking. There's like some kind of party. And I guess that's just what we do there, right? And there's just all kinds of lawlessness going. We're just going to break all the commands. Like we're going to gather together and just break commands all night long. Now in the first century, this was actually way more common than you'd, you'd think. So in, in the marketplace, in public, there was all kinds of sexual sin happening, all kinds of uh, pagan worship happening where, for people in the public to actually see. So a little foreign to us, like we just tend to sin in private. Um, but it was right there in the marketplace. It would have been in, in homes. So people that didn't believe in Christ would, would actually gather in homes and do all kinds of, of gross, nasty things. You can, you can use your imagination. But what Peter's trying to hit at home here, more importantly, is to say, that's not you anymore. You used to live for the whim of the day, the, the, the desires, whatever went, you just did. It was fine. It didn't matter. There's no accountability. But now that's not you anymore. You've been changed by the gospel. You're a new relationship with God. You want to do his will. But, did you catch verse 4? But don't be surprised when people malign you or push you away when you don't want to jump in. <laughs> when you don't want to have your drunken parties or, or whatever is going on. You've you been there, right? When, when God gets a hold of you. And I know some of us, like we grew up in the church and it's like, I can't remember a time when like I maybe was a Christian or wasn't a Christian, but 
But you know there was a, a specific time in your life, a season in your life, where you said, like, I'm really understanding it now. Like, it, it means something to me now, even if you grew up in a Christian home. But some of us, we, we've come from, I mean, some of us just became Christians a couple years ago or came from really dark circumstances. And what happens when you start following Christ? Well, you, you want to do God's will and listen to what he says and love God and love our neighbor. So what does that mean? Well, the people around you that don't follow Christ, sometimes they kind of look down on you. You been there? I remember when I was a new believer in, in college, um, uh, I, had, I had a little problem with drinking and drugs in high school. Um, some of you know that. But um, I, I get to college, and the first day of college, I'm, I'm walking through the, the parking lot, of, I mean, literally the first day of college, and, and uh, a buddy I used to hang out with and party with comes up to me, and he's like, hey, Ryan, how's, uh, how's school going? I was like, I don't know. It's the first day, so I, I can't really tell you. Um, but I'm going to accounting, and I'm really uh, sad about that. So I uh, you know, hope it goes well. Um, and then you know, just kind of weaves in. He's like, hey, you want to buy some drugs? <laughs> Assuming that's who I was. Still was. And it's like, hey man, I, I just I don't do that anymore. You know, I'm I'm I don't think I don't even know if I don't think I said I'm a Christian now. But I but I remember over time it was kind of like, oh, I guess we don't hang out with that guy anymore. Now I'll, I'll say a couple things on that. I'm not saying bail on all your friends that don't believe. We have an opportunity to proclaim the good news of Christ to those that that don't. I think as you become more into the Christian life, a lot of times, sadly, is we we kind of tend to push people away that aren't Christians. But when you first become a Christian, here's the challenge. You're not mature enough to handle it. You're not mature enough to, to handle the temptations, right? So, so for me, it was like I had to cut people off. It's like I, I don't have the maturity. I don't have the, the, you want to call it willpower. I don't have the, you know, whatever to, to, to kind of live how I'd want to live. I'm too weak. And so there's times you have to push away and say, I just can't be in those situations. And, and hopefully by God's grace, as we mature, we can re-engage and say, Okay, I can live with those who don't believe what I believe, and I can still be salt and light in those places. But don't be surprised when it happens. If you're really living out your faith, don't be surprised when it happens. See, what we're doing now in 2019 is like the worst thing we think that could happen in our lives is that someone thinks we're uncool. Just go on social media. The worst thing is not, hey, I want to live for God. I want to. It's like not being in the in crowd. The fear of missing out, right? It's, 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 that's worse than anything. Like, I just don't want to be, I'm in, in my workplace and I had an opportunity to say something. That, hey, I'm a Christian. I just don't do that kind of thing. But I just don't want to be on the outside looking in. I care about more of my reputation than I do about God's reputation. And I don't say that as I have that nailed and you guys don't. Believe me, I've been in many situations where I didn't want to say, what I believed in, who I was in Christ, and, and I just kind of went with the flow, right? Just middle school all over again. Sure, I'll do that. I'll drink a gallon of milk. <laughs> you can Google that. But, um, but we have to also not only look to the past sufferings of Christ, but we also look to our lives before we were Christians and how we have this new identity now. We hold up that mirror and say, that's just not who I am anymore. Now, that's the past. I don't have much to say about the future, but I have a lot of implications for what that means for our living. But, but also you need to consider the future because notice where, where he says this. I, I love it. It's very practical here. He says, you know, verse 4, you know, 
with respect to those who are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. There's just debauchery happening. It's a flood. And then malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So consider the future that, that we don't have to jump in the fray because we know that they're going to be judged just like everyone's going to be judged in the future. There's something about that, just knowing that deep in our bones, having a high, if you want to say eschatology, is actually very practical in your life. <laughs> that, that one day when we see all the, the murder and we see all the pain and all the suffering and all the injustice in the world, to know that one day they're not going to get off the hook. Okay, because there's so much in us that says, like, it's my job. I have to be, you know, the, the one. I have to be the warrior. I have to be the one who, who decides how this goes. And I'm going to fight. And it's not that we become passive. But think about Jesus, what he did when he was maligned. He entrusted himself to the Father because he knew there was a judgment coming one day and that God would make these things right. Don't, don't think when we see kids like this living in Nicaragua or wherever that, that don't have the, the necessities and there's corrupt governments and there's all kinds of things going on in our world that just aren't right and there's racism and sexism and all these, these isms, right? Judgment's still coming for all. Don't you think for a moment that God has somehow wiped sin under the rug and says, oh, I'm just a gracious God. No, 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 no. He cannot be consistent with his character if he does not judge sin because he's a perfect, holy God. You with me? It would be unjust for God not to punish what is dark and evil and wrong. But most of us don't think like that on a daily basis. That's why we've got to hold up the mirror and consider the future, that we're going to be okay, that those things will be worked out in the end by a just, holy, good God. We don't have to be the judge. In fact, what the scriptures say more often than not is judgment comes to the household of God. It's not our job to judge everyone's behavior outside the church. Like, you're expecting people to live as Christians that aren't Christians? Are you kidding me? Since when? Right? It's like we, we judge everyone. Like, can you believe, oh my gosh, how are they doing all these things? And yet Peter's going like, hey, remember how you used to live like that? Well, yeah, that was before you were a Christian. But you're a Christian now, so we're, we're, we're judging everyone. Hey, why aren't you living like Christ would want you to live? Well, because they don't follow Christ. That's why. And so we need to chill out, people, right? That's my word to you. You can you know, quote that, put that on Instagram, whatever you want to do. Chill out, people. Pastor Ryan said that. Don't expect people to live like followers of Christ that aren't followers of Christ. But judgment begins with the household of God. If we're not taking these things seriously, we have every right to judge me and judge each other. You with me? We just, I just want everyone just judging everyone, just starting now. Just this week, just no, don't take that too far. <laughs> I just see how Citigroup's going to go this, this week. Well, Brian, hey, I'd like to talk to you the way you talked to your wife the other day, uh, mister. There's grace there, too. But we consider the future that God is at work and that in the end, all will be made, made right. Now, notice also what, what he says here about the future in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Oh, I love those signs the crazy people have. The end is near right outside of Chief Stadium or wherever, on the plaza. Now, the end of all things is at hand. What, what he means is he's placing us in a particular place in history, Peter is. And he's saying, Christ has lived, he's died, he's resurrected from the dead. Now you and I live what in the Bible calls the end of days, before Christ's return. He says the end is near. Of course it is. They don't know when. No one knows. 
Only the Father knows, and only the Son knows in, in all eternity. So it's not our job to decide, you know, be the crazy people who are doing the little formulas and the math problems and just saying it's going to happen in 1982 at this time in this, this place. He's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the end is, is near, so God is at work, and there is going to be a future hope and a promise that is coming. We just need to be patient for it. So consider the future, that we live in the last days before Christ's return. Now, with that in our bones, with that in our understanding, having this high view of eschatology, how do we live today? Well, we've already said we, we look to the past. We consider Christ's sufferings for us. We also consider our own conversion. We consider the future and how even this, the idea that God will one day judge the living and the dead. So even if people are maligning us, pushing us aside, we know that one day they'll be dealt with just like us and just like them. But what are the implications for the present? Because notice how practical Peter gets here. The end of all things is at hand. Okay, good. Therefore, remember when you see a therefore, you always ask, what is it? what's it there for? Beautiful. Daniel's actually listening. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In light of these realities that Christ has come and died, in light of these realities that he is, the end is near and all is going to be made new, that we're in the last half of human history, in light of these things, live self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Doesn't that seem kind of backwards? Because I see a lot of people going, the end is near, so just, you know, hold it in, get in a bunker, right? Just get some food down there, and let's hold it in, and let's create a subculture, and let's live off, you know, off the grid and get away from all the people. That's not what Peter says at all. He says, do the opposite of actually what the culture does that's chaotic and out of control and just goes with every whim and every emotion and every feeling, Right? says, no, no, do the other. Be, be self-controlled. Be, be, be sober-minded. Think about these things. Think about what Christ has done for you. Think about the cosmic reality that God is making all things new. And think about how now you can live a different kind of life. Because isn't that just what sin is? Sin is just being out of control. It's just whatever whim comes, whatever feeling comes, whatever thing I want, I just want to get, right? It's all about me and my thoughts and my, my feelings or, or, or my inclinations. But he's saying, no, no, that, that's not how you're, you're, you're to live. You're going to live self-controlled, sober-minded lives, wise, ordered lives, not just going with every whim, whatever feeling comes your way or whatever temptation comes your way. Now, it's interesting how Peter frames this. He says, for the sake of your prayers. Why does he say it that way? You remember uh, last week I talked about marriage, and um, I was happy that some of you came back this week. Um, but First Peter 3, um, verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers not may, be, may not be hindered. It's kind of the same idea here. If we're in this relationship with God and we're not treating our wives with respect and honor and understanding them, guess what? Our relationship with God is fractured, and so is our relationship with our wife or our spouses is fractured. So he's saying here, if you're not living sober-minded, self-controlled lives, and you're just going with every whim and every sin and every temptation or whatever, guess what? Your relationship with Christ is fractured because now we're called to live for him. But when you're sober-minded and self-controlled, it takes a whole, praying is, is, takes on a whole new uh, posture, doesn't it? So that's one implication, is we're to live these self-controlled, sober-minded lives for the sake of our prayer prayers. 
And also, I think just praying in general. We don't live passive lives. We don't say, you know what? Things are just going to happen the way they're going to happen. That makes no sense if you read the Bible. I don't know where anyone ever gets that because I'm going to let you in on a little secret. This was many, many years of study and thoughtfulness and reflection on some of the best thinkers in the universe ever in church history. Why should we not think that way? It's because prayer is a command in Scripture. All right? Just, we're supposed to pray. We don't, we don't, do, we don't play this. You know, Jesus said, hey, and when you pray, right? He just says, hey, you're going to pray. He doesn't go, hey, well, you know, everything's just going to happen. My will be done. It doesn't really matter. He just commands us to pray. So that must mean that somehow in God's sovereignty and somehow even in God's total control of the universe, somehow our prayers do something, don't they? Why would he command us to do something that makes no sense? Because he's, he's the dad that just goes, hey, listen to me. Why, dad? Because I said so. I'm your dad. Anybody pull that card? Probably today, I imagine. Probably on the way to church. Right? Don't you love that? That's just like the worst thing. But that's when you, you know you're at the end of your wits, right? You're just like, I have nothing smart, intelligent, wise to say to my kids. I'm trying to shape them for the future. Just be these loving, godly, amazing kids. And yet, dad, why? Because I'm your dad. That's why. I didn't ask for it. That's just God's plan. I don't know. Just... Be quiet. No, you can't use the iPad for nine more hours. No more. I said eight, and that's it. It's been a hard day. But you know what I love about the scriptures? The scriptures don't answer our questions like that, do they? Well, why? Because God said so. He's God. This whole argument in First Peter is not that at all. He says, well, why are we going to suffer like this? Because Christ died for you. Why are you going to live like this? Because the end is near and God is making all things new. The scriptures always give us reason. They give us, give us evidence. They give us truth behind it, right? And in our, in our world, it's the total opposite. Why should we love people? If you're not a believer and you're an atheist, it's like the strangest anomaly to me is like, why do we care about anything in the universe? Why do we care about people on any level if you don't believe in God? If we're all just random and we're just accidents, I don't understand it. Well, we, we just should, because that's what good people do. Okay, well, where does that come from? Well, because, I don't know, when people are suffering, we should do something about it. Well, tell me why. Why? Well, we would say because they're made in the image of God, and every human is valuable, full of value and full of respect. The scriptures always do that for us. They don't just say, just believe in the dark, just, just do whatever, just, just like a parent, just because I said so. <laughs> Live sober lives, controlled lives, because the end is near. Also, keep loving each other with earnest kind of love. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of, of sins. Love is hard, amen? But now that we've been freed in Christ, now that we, we love God with all hearts, now that he's loved us first, we are free to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love those inside the church and love those outside the church. And that's where it, it comes from. That's, that's the impetus. Why do we love others? Because we've been loved first. Ever think about that? I have no reason to love any of you in this room. Like if I'm just a guy on the street and I, I bump into you, what, what, what's my motivation for loving you on any level, to tangibly love you, to helping you, encouraging you, whatever? It's the love of God. Man, I was outside the family. 
I, I was an enemy of God. He loved me. He died for me. He forgave me of all my sins. He invited me into the family. I didn't deserve any of it. There's nothing good in me. And yet he said, you're mine. There's a bunch of people walking around our city that don't deserve the grace and mercy of God, but yet I'm supposed to emulate the Father who says, I send rain on the just and the unjust. I even love my enemies. That's why I love people. And God commands it because he said, I said so. <laughs> love God and love, love neighbor. It's an earnest love. It's an intentional love. It's a, it's a, it's a love that, that covers a multitude of sins. Now, what does that mean? It covers a multitude of sins. Most scholars think it's, he's referencing Proverbs 10, verse 12. It's an interesting text here. Um, Peter being a good Jewish boy, we probably know his Old Testament really well. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Isn't that true? The more hate there is, what does it do? It just creates more hate. Right? You just add the seed of hate, just more and more and more hate. You have the seed of love, it starts disarming all the hate, right? The opposite of, of love is, is, is hate, you could say that. I mean, some would say it's indifference, but... But, but covering a multitude of sins, loving people isn't minimizing the sin, isn't saying we don't believe in sin or we don't think that's a sin, but it's actually I'm going to love that person really well to disarm the hate, to disarm the, the suffering, the pain, the, the whatever that is inside the community, right? So I could get really mad at you and just keep being mad, right? And just keep sowing that seed of madness and anger, right? And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Or I can disarm it with love and grace. And say, hey, that thing's not, that's not right. I love you. I forgive you. Let, let, let's move on from that. There's a, a, a time in my life, you know, my, my dad's a, a good, good guy. And, and when my parents got divorced when I was a teenager, um, just trying to hold the family together. And it was, it was, you know, I really appreciate him for that. And, you know, he, he would say he's a believer, but, you know, maybe on the little more on the nominal side, and that's fine. But, but the reality is, like, I remember this moment where he really kind of gospeled me up. I had done something really stupid. I won't go into details. We don't need to bring that up. Um, it's probably not appropriate for young years anyways. But I did something. I came home, and the first thing my dad said is, I love you. I didn't feel like I deserved any of that love. I did something horrible. Could have got arrested. Just really bad, dark things. And the first thing he said was, I love you, son. Now, there were some other words after that. <laughs> what were you thinking? I didn't raise you this way. There's consequences for your actions. And yes, there were a lot of consequences for that action. But the thing with love was it disarmed the hate. That there was something in me that says, I want to listen to my dad from here on out. Now, I didn't do that very well, but I wanted to. When you see the love of God and the mercies of God and the grace of God given to you, the more you think on that, the more you reflect on that, the more you hold the mirror up to your own life and soul, it's a lot easier to love than being different or hate, isn't it? Because God loved us first. Martin Luther King um, had a great quote. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. That sounds like the Bible, doesn't it? That light pushes out darkness. Love pushes out darkness. And so, so in light of our future secured in Christ, our, the future of God making all things new, we're to love earnestly inside and outside the church. Do you notice how none of this is passive at all? Well, the end is near. Let's get in our bunkers. No, the end is near. Let's engage. 
with self, self, with sober-mindedness, self-controlled, with love that covers a multitude of sin, and then thirdly, with gracious hospitality. Again, motivated. All these, you see how they kind of build on each other? All of these are motivated by the gospel. All of these are, are rooted in the fact that God loved us first. So guess what? When we understand that God loves us first, we should be the most hospitable people on, on, on the planet. Why? Well, the, the Old Testament scriptures say that constantly. Hey, when you get into the land, remember you used to be aliens and exiles, but God brought you into the family. He was hospitable to you. Right? You could have lived outside the camp. He could have shunned you. He could have said, no, you're my enemies. Yet he brings you in like a good father and says, hey, I adopt you as my own sons and daughters. So as we think about that, guess what? We should be hospitable. Hospitable to our Christian brothers and sisters. Opening up our lives, opening up our homes, opening up our money and saying, hey, hey, I love you. When they're maligned and they're, they're looked down upon, when they're, 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 they're trying to live out their faith and things aren't going well, we should be very hospitable. We should be you know, cooking meals for them and helping them and encouraging them and, and, and praying for them, having open-handed posture saying, hey, come on in. Now for us, very individual Western people, that's really hard to pull off because we love the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I, right? My own comfort. But in a, in a first century context where you were maligned and pushed away and the home was usually where the church happened, very small group of people, maybe five or six or seven or maybe ten people in a room, hospitality was everything. Come, be loved, be encouraged, be loved, be welcomed because we've been welcomed by Christ. I heard someone say, uh, I read some a couple years ago, he said, the, the future of evangelism and, and apologetics in the Western world is going to be hospitality. People have heard our rhetoric, what we believe in our tight little arguments, but we need to show the world what God is like by our lives, by being hospitable people and opening up our homes, opening up our lives and being open-handed. That's going to be the greatest apologetic. Francis Schaeffer said the greatest apologetic is love. And so did Jesus, by the way. How will they know my love? By your love. Gracious hospitality, and then lastly, gifts of grace and acts of service. All of us have been wired up by God with certain spiritual gifts to serve each other, to build each other up. That that God, when you became a Christian, he gave you a spiritual gift, and, and the gift was not for yourself. It was to encourage and build other people up and to serve other people, to lay our lives down, just like Christ laid his life down for us. And so I love the way Peter kind of ends this, this section with the, the reminding us that we're not called to just sit back passively, but to say, hey, I've given all these gifts to the church to, to serve and, and, and to use, whether that's speaking or whether that's service or, or, or somewhere in between. Go read 1 Corinthians 12. Go read Ephesians, um, Ephesians uh, about the spiritual gifts, Romans 12. All these gifts that God has given the body, that's what they're for. And you know when you see them, Right? Those gifts of hospitality and mercy, you come into somebody's house and it's just like, I just want to be here. It's just a welcoming spirit, right? It's just a loving spirit. Those of gifts of leadership, those with gifts of administration, those with, 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 with gifts of service, they're just like, hey, whenever there's a need, they're the first one to pop up. They don't want to be on a stage. They don't want to be known, but man, they're behind the scenes just serving their brains out. You know those people. Some of you are those people. I'm just a guy that just talks too much. But I, but I want to use that gift well. And some of you say, well, maybe you should think about some other gifts. But anyway, that's, let's not talk about that right now. It's not important. But I love that, that Peter says, in light of the future 
of the entire cosmos, in light of the resurrection of Christ, in light of his return, in the fact that our future is secure, now go use your gifts and serve other people. Don't crawl in a hole. Don't be passive. Don't forget that you're, you're called to love. Don't forget that you're called to be sober-minded. Don't, don't, don't just sit on your hands. We've got work to do. And that's what the gospel does. It frees us, it motivates us to serve when, even when it's hard to serve with all that God supplies, as our, as our text says. Because as we do that, it glorifies God. Verse 11, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belonging belong glory and dominion and forever. When God gets glory, it's because we're arming ourselves and thinking about what Christ has accomplished for us, his suffering, and that he suffered completely, finally, so that we can live free and we can live for his will. That the future is secure. The end is is near, but the future is secure so that even when we're maligned, even when people push us away, even when people don't have kind things to say, we're not going to be passive and crawl in a hole. We're actually going to arm ourselves with the way Christ says, says, you know what, I'm just going to trust myself to the Father because he judges justly. I'm not going to worry about that. And I'm going to love uh, earnestly and I'm going to be gracious and open my my life and I'm going to use all the gifts that God has given me for his glory and his honor. Now, when you hear that and I hear that, I just go like, whoa, not very good at this. But every week we, we have this reminder, we have this visual of the bread and the cup that represents the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. That there's only been one person that's pulled this off, and his name is Jesus. The only one who's perfectly entrusted himself to the Father in the midst of suffering. Only one who's loved earnestly and perfectly. Only one who's been hospitable and every way, even toward his enemies. Only one who's used his gifts for the glory of God and only the glory of God. Because I don't know about you, I can use my gifts for Ryan's glory. I'm really good at that. And the praise of man, it's very easy to do. But there's one who lived for one audience and one audience alone, and his name is Jesus Christ. So if you find yourself overwhelmed by a text like this and feel like, man, I don't think like that. I don't, I don't, I don't think about, you know, eschatology. I don't even know what that word means. Uh, I, I don't love as I should. I don't use my gift. You know, all these things. I just want you to know there's a, a gracious God who still invites us to the table. He says, come all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and come and eat. Right? He, the only thing he asks is just, just trust me. Just trust me. And that's why we need this meal every week, to be nourished and remember the mission in which we've called this God who was exiled for us so that we could be exiles and live for, live for him. So if you're a believer in Christ and you're following Christ, come and celebrate the supper with us. The way we do that, we have two groups up in the front. Um, break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. There's some gluten-free bread in the middle there. If you're not a believer in Christ, we just ask you to stay seated, but we want you to believe and we want you to follow Christ. And so uh, there's some prayers and some, uh, some thoughts in our city life that you can think on and reflect on. If you want to talk more about that, I'd love to talk more about that because I, I really believe that without Christ, there is no really future for the hope. It's all just kind of hearsay and yeah, maybe. But we know in Christ, he's done something that we couldn't do for our, ourselves. And so we have this, this new living hope that we walk in, holding up that mirror every single day. Oh, how we need it. Let us pray. Father, Give us the the courage, give us the grace to hold up the mirror of the gospel to our hearts and our lives every day. 
Not just so we can, can meditate on truth that is, that is about Christ dying for us or forgiving us or resurrecting from the dead is important, those things all, but, but truth that, that, that translates into living very distinct, unique lives. Lives of uh, self-control, lives of love, lives of hospitality, lives of service. And that through it all, we would glorify your name. Lord, I, I would encourage uh, my, my friends here this morning that as they, they sit here, God, if there's something that, um, that they need to just lay before you, confess before you, I, I pray by the Spirit of God you would just give them the courage to do that and that they would know that you're a forgiving, gracious God. There's no sin that you can't forgive because the cross proves it. So maybe we lay our lives before you, the ways we haven't loved you with all our hearts and the ways we haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. And we, we, want, we want to feed on your grace and your mercy. So help us, oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.